should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that is breaking down all of your favorite scary movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. So we're back tonight with our fifth episode, and we are kicking off a whole new set of movies. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am so excited for this. Like, I know a lot of our listeners were big Scream fans, and that's fine and dandy. But this this is my this is my cup of tea. So I, I am very stoked. I, I, as am I. As as am I, man. I'm pretty thrilled to be doing this tonight, uh, and really excited because we have another um, guest host again tonight. So we have a streak of four in a row now. This is fantastic. Um, yeah. We're thrilled and excited to welcome Justin Beam to this week's episode. Um, Justin's a writer, director, producer, and podcaster. Uh, his work you might be familiar with if you've ever read Horror Hound Magazine, Fangoria, of course, and, and of the famous monsters of Filmland. Um, Justin also runs Reverend Entertainment. He's a part of the team at Scream Factory and Shout Factory. So basically all these really rad like special edition, collector edition Blu-ray titles we're getting for all these like really awesome horror movies right now. Like drop Justin a note of thanks for this because he's part of the uh, team that works on that. He uh, is the host of a new series called the Justin Beam Radio Hour, uh, Radio Hour podcast. So Justin, how are you doing tonight? Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm Again, congratulations on the show. I am thrilled that you guys tagged me in on the first Friday the 13th, or on the first, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, you can cut that part out, I guess. Um, well, I think it's in the show title, so I don't think there's any spoilers. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. So th- I'm just excited to be here, and I, I appreciate that all very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, your your work's really exceptional. I mean, the Willard Blu-ray, uh, some of my favorite special features. Uh, that's one thing that always stands out about the stuff you produce. Like, it's not just little, like, EPKs. It's fairly in-depth interviews, and I think anyone that buys that stuff re- gets really stoked on them. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I figured I there's there's been so many years of so many releases on a lot of these titles, and I like to, if I have a chance to have someone in the chair... I really love picking their brain and going back mm-hmm. to their histories and getting as much out of that time as I can, as opposed to just a brief chat about the movie at hand, because usually we have commentaries and other things that are going to speak to that as well. So I, I appreciate as, as I mentioned to you in the past, your continued support here, man, and um, really means the world. And I'm glad that you enjoy the format that I do these things in. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So what are we here to talk about? I think the cat is out of the bag. Jerry, what are we here to talk about in, in, in your own words? Why are we so excited about to bring this we, podcast oh my, journey? 
Oh my God. We are here to talk about my favorite franchise in the world. When I talk about my favorite movie of all time, I always mention Halloween because it is. It's not my favorite movie. It's the best movie ever made. Uh, you know, I love the first five of those and I love the newest Halloween. But with that being said, it is the Friday the 13th franchise that just gets me going. And I, I just could not be more excited than I am right now. So listeners, that's what we're doing. Friday the 13th, 12 movies, 13 episodes. It's going to be wild. We have such an insane amount of guests. Uh, we have this really random uh, turn of events that came about, though, to where we'll have like guests from the movies themselves as well uh, now, which yep. is kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> so a lot to look forward to, but we're going to hit the ground running tonight. It's really neat. And like we know we started to reach out to see who wanted to be on. Like we're kind of at the point now where I've actually had to like turn a couple people away or I'm like, you know, we have like so many guests at this point that I'm like, you know, it's going to be a clusterfuck if we try to get every single person that wanted to come on um, the show. But we're like, you know, we have other things that we're going to be doing. So, um, but it's, it's just like, it's humbling in a way that so many people like want to come on to our little show here and like talk about these movies. And I think it's a testament to like how much they've endured, um, you know, since well, that's, yeah, yeah, that and the fact – I mean there's there's always those really kind of pretentious horror fans, and I'm not speaking for all of them because obviously most of us are awesome. But there's there's those few that like always just rag on franchises and series, and I think what you're talking about with so many people wanting to be on it, it's not that we're doing anything right. It's just the fact that we all just love these movies. We love yeah. – you know, we love seeing Jason come back again and again and Roy – uh, I cannot wait till episode five. Uh, and all of those, they're, they're great. You know, it's fun to take these rides with all these different characters from movie to movie. So I, I think that's why everyone is so excited. And, you know, that's one thing I want to touch on really quick because, you know, the Friday the 13th series, I really love it. It's not my favorite franchise. I think it would probably go to either Halloween or A Nightmare on Elm Street. But I think in terms of consistency, I think when you look at the best Friday the 13th and the worst Friday the 13th, and I'll put worst in quotes, um, but I think like when you look at the gap between them, like there's the lowest gap between in quality. It's fairly consistent. It's kind of like the, it's like getting like a decent fast food burger. Like it's always going to be at least pretty good or it's like pizza. Like there's no such thing as like absolutely terrible pizza. So oh, it's yeah. consistent. So even like, even the Friday movies I enjoy the least, I still enjoy. Like, I'm never going to turn them off if they come on. They're always fun to watch. Um, and it's funny, like, you know, I tend to do a lot of reading and research and listening. And I think I messaged you, it was this, Jerry, like, there isn't a ton of great Friday the 13th podcasts. There are two really good ones I will mention by name because, um, you know, they were just so much fun to listen to as I was putting notes together. Like the Kill by Kill podcast, which is, and I think they may even be guests on this. I don't know if we've confirmed it, but I know that they're interested. Um, yeah, those guys are great. They're super rad and super nice, and they absolutely love these movies. Like, that was a really fun one to listen to. Uh, and also the um, Return to Camp Blood was the other one um, that had been around for a number of years, and they had done some really quality in-depth work overall. Um, and then some I listened to, like, you got – there was one I was really enjoying. They were reviewing the whole franchise – 
But by the time they got to like Jason takes Manhattan, it just took such a, um, it was like just mean spirited the way like these movies were getting ripped apart. And that's one thing I, you know, we'll be critical where they should be critical, but, um, it was almost like it was, I had to turn it off, um, by the time I started listening to Jason Goes to Hell, because I'm like, this isn't fun anymore. Like, I feel bad. Just well, that's <laughs> the thing. Like, uh, there are movies that I just can't stand, but I'm just – it's just not in my nature to try to just, like, decimate something. You know, like, uh, I'm not a fan of the Scream franchise that mm-hmm. much, you know, really at all. But, like, even episode three of Scream 3, which is one of my most hated movies of all time, like, I just felt bad – just slamming it nonstop, right. you know. Like I try to find something positive about it because mm-hmm. every film takes, you know, a good amount of people to make it. They it don't does. set up to make a bad movie. Yeah, I don't think anyone. Yet, and that's a great point. No one sets out to make a terrible movie. Um, so we're going to. I think overall, if you get any vibe from us whatsoever, like you're going to get these movies approach from people that really love these movies. Um, and we'll be critical and I think we'll be a little tongue in cheek at times, but my hope when we wrap up these 13 episodes with the summer will be just about over by the time you people hear the last episode, um, and we'll be ready to dive into almost Halloween season at that point. Um, my hope is when we're done with this, the listeners are going to have like a really good kind of like audio compendium to listen to and kind of like, Hopefully you learn some stuff and get a new appreciation or just like find fun stuff out you love about these movies. So that's my rant for tonight. So, so Justin, tell me a little bit about what it is that drew you to the Friday the 13th movies uh, growing up as a horror fan. Like what was it that really appealed to you? This was the really um, an early one for me when I was working my way through Fangoria magazine and you know, grabbing every issue of that and famous monsters that I could get my hands on. And after I had broken out of the early stuff that led me into this whole realm at all, which was the Crestwood house monster books, which led to the universal monster films, which then led to Fango and then Fango, it it like blew, blew my mind. And of course you can't dive into Fangoria in the eighties and not in early nineties without hitting Friday the 13th left and right. And so it was a bit of a dare. It was a thing where I would go to the video rental store and, you know, I had memberships at every one of them in town, ride my bike there or go with my parents before I could go on my own. And it was always like me daring myself to rent these things because they scared the hell out of me. A, a lot of horror movies did. And Friday the 13th felt like a bit of a, sort of a, like a, an important moment for me as a genre fan because mm-hmm. it seemed to me when you're reading the magazine at that point, before all the snarky stuff that's out there today, when you just had sincere journalism about things back then, you didn't judge it. And so you didn't, we walked into these movies that we would read about the effects on or the director or the score or whatever it might be. Those magazines weren't being written mocking any of it. And they, and by and large, although there certainly were reviews, the reviews were not the point of any of these magazines. So, and I'm talking about like, now we're getting into like horror fan and gore zone and all the rest of these magazines from around the world that I buy, you know, wherever I could get them. And so I approached these with a sincerity and I took them seriously from the beginning, not with sort of like the wink and nod that some people might now with the way that they might be exposed to them. And it was a, it was a, 
a, a series of over the course of one summer, I remember me one at a time working my way through the series randomly as I found them. So I didn't go chronologically. And I think that I want to say the first one I ever saw was part two. And then from there, Jason takes Manhattan. I saw at my uncle's house uh, on his big screen TV when we stayed there and it mortified me. And then from there I went back to part one and then started, started piecing the, the whole mm-hmm. thing together. But anyway, Halloween two was the first slasher movie that I saw outside that. Well, the first slasher movie that I ever saw, it was, it was my first step out of the universal world and Halloween two led to one, four and five. And at the same time is when I started getting into the Friday, the 13th. So, um, as far as what appealed to me about it, I, I love the Halloween mythology and I grew to love the Friday the 13th mythology the same way because you're entering two very rich pools of entertainment, which is kind of rare because these, you know, most of the time you, you see the first film in a series, you hope it may continue. It may or it may not. But at any point at, at the ages that we are here collectively talking today, we put our toe in the water where there were already how, you know, so many movies existing in all these franchises. So Mm -hmm. it's so much that we had to dig into. And I think that that lends to our love of this too, because it wasn't something where we had to hope for more and then maybe not get it. Like we knew it was there and there was a lot for us to dig into and we could marathon these. I'm sure we've all done that and, and really burn through a lot of them with our friends and sleepovers. And I know I was a huge fan of doing that. So Mm -hmm. I, all of that, I think, added up to me loving it. And plus, overall, I just love the concept. I love the camp environment. I like the the story behind Jason, even though, you know, we'll, we'll I'm sure get into that a little bit later, and his mom. And I like how adventurous this series is. It's adventurous in a way that's different from the others, like Nightmare or Halloween. It's adventurous in its own darker way. And I've always really appreciated that. So it offers us a lot of diversity, I think, as well. Oh, definitely. And one thing that is really great is, and I know I can speak for you too, is that we love these films without a hint of irony. Right. Like uh, yesterday was my son's 10th birthday and I took him to a comic book store. And, you know, I I grew up collecting comics, but in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I just kind of... Uh, you know, grew out of it. It's not my thing. So I'm so far behind. And the guy behind the register was asking, you know, me and my kids, oh, so did you guys see Avengers Endgame? And my kids were all excited. And I, I was like, no, I didn't. My kids did, though. And the guy behind the counter was like, man, I started crying. Like, it was just so beautiful. Oh. And like, after we left, like, I found myself being that kind of snarky guy to my kids, kind of like, oh, that nerd. And then my, my, my son was just like, but dad, that's how you are with like Friday the 13th and Halloween. Yeah, yeah. And I had to step, I had to step back and think like, wow, that's the truth. Like these movies, like, and it, it might sound silly to people that don't feel the way, or maybe didn't have that upbringing with these films that are so important to them. But the Friday the 13th series was very much my MCU, uh, you know, mythology. It was very much my like set of films that I just digested and worshiped to the point where I would get in arguments with my, you know, my 40 year old uncles when I was like seven or eight, you know, arguing about specific plot points of, you know, Jason lives <laughs> like these, these films are so huge to me. And, and when I talk about 
the Halloween series or the Friday Thirteenth series, especially. Like I always make the joke that you know the loves of my li- love of my life are like you know my children, my wife, and Friday Thirteenth and Halloween, and people laugh, and it's just like I'm not joking. Like I hold these movies like closer than most of my family. Like, yeah. I, you know, I'm not close to my dad, but I will tell you everything about Tommy Jarvis. Right. <laughs> well, we used to debate, you know, movies like Friday the 13th and a nightmare in Elm street on the playgrounds. Like, yeah. you know, Jason could kick Freddie's ass. No, you know, like Leatherface is a tough, enough. that's what we did. Like the way that other kids now might talk about like Captain America and Iron Man, you know, we were talking about Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. Like that's what being a child of the eighties was like. And Justin, you brought up, you know, the pages of Fangoria and also the trips to the video store and like the weekend sleepovers. And that's what it was like. Like for me, like I probably came to Friday the 13th, maybe a little bit later, like around saw my, I think I saw part five first. So I would have had to have been around maybe 12 years old or so by that point when it was on cable. Um, but I remember like I reading the pages of Fangoria, like I would, you know, go to the supermarket with dad. I would go right to the magazine section while he shopped around and I would look at like pro wrestling illustrated and Fangoria. And you would see like all the behind the scene pictures and like how bloody. And I'm like, Oh man, I cannot wait to watch these movies. One day I had a cousin who is a notorious liar or definitely was as a kid. And he would be like, Oh, I've seen all of them. And he would tell me these like, you know, like, Oh, there's one where like Jason's in a hospital and he has a baby and he's talking to people. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, that sounds so fucking cool. What a dick. Yeah. He's so (laughs) fuck you cousin. Um, He's a good guy, but, um, but yeah, like back then he like, there was like the one I was like, Oh yeah. Then like none of that shit happened. Um, but I like, it's funny that you, uh, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, the wrestling magazine because, uh, there was this one time where my dad took me to, uh, the local bookstore. I think it might've been Walden books when they were still in business. Mm -hmm. And I picked up, uh, an issue of Fangoria and, uh, a wrestling magazine and, on the cover of the wrestling magazine was Dusty Rhodes with his head cut open. So there was like blood rushing down. Yeah. And then oh, yeah. and we went to the laundromat after that. And one on my left hand, there's a wrestling magazine with Dusty Rhodes with his head cut open. In the right right hand, there was Jason all bloody. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there was this like elderly woman that looked at my dad like he was like grooming a serial killer. It was the <laughs> like worst look I've ever gotten in my life. Yeah, we definitely get looks because you know i've let my daughter is nine and she's watched you know she's like seen things she probably should like family movie night uh last week was like we watched friday the 13th part six together um board game night tonight with a family was mixtape massacre and i was jokingly saying like hey your birthday sleepover we should all play this game with your friends and she's like really and i'm like "Ooh, probably not we're a fairly conservative small town and we might have no more play dates after that so but isn't it interesting to see that being passed down Mm -hmm. Uh, there the first issue of kind of like the new resurrected Fango, uh, I was looking through it and my son Dexter was like, Hey dad, can I look at that? And he, he was nine at the time and I showed him and he was going over all the different Halloween masks. And I, he was basically going over every single mask in the series, given his opinions on them. Like, okay, 
This one's fine. Part four, uh, it's a little too blank. Kind of looks like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Part five, he kind of looks French. I don't know why the mask is so long and all this stuff. And then, like, I was cracking up because it just reminded me of, of like, myself at that age. Yes. Like, we're, we're so passionate about every little detail with these films. And that and especially with Friday the 13th with me, like and you, you mentioned having like a good solid run with those as far as, you know, being entertaining. I think a big reason why I love the series so much is the first seven films in the Friday the 13th series. I love with a passion. And then there's, you know, one or two spread out after that that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. But out of any franchise, I think that might be the one that is consistently the best for me. Yeah, I do. I think that like overall, like I don't think the best movie, I, I don't think any of the Friday the 13th approach the level of craftsmanship that say John Carpenter's Halloween or Wes Craven in a Nightmare on Elm Street or Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre have. I think that those are brilliant movies, no matter the genre, like you can put them up against just about anything and have like a, just, it's a brilliant film. But I think that like the level of consistency and kind of knowing what you're in for with the Fridays, like on some level, almost all of them work for me. Um, I don't think there's any of them that I out or I do not like, although there are some, I like less than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that it, it, comes down to also what we're looking for in our entertainment. When we talk about the artistic merit or the historical value of something and how, the, how they're constructed in the artistry with which they're made, because no one sets out to make a bad movie. And you mentioned that earlier, Jerry, a little bit, that um, really, though, these things are perfectly crafted for what they are. Mm-hmm. So... One of the things that I'm always on my, and I don't get on my soapbox often, but one of the things that I do get up there regarding is letting a film exist unto itself, letting it play by its own rules within its own universe and not get too locked into expectation or what you've seen before or comparing it to something else. Just letting every movie, no matter if it's part seven of a series or the first or whatever it might be, letting it exist unto itself and then thinking about it within the framework as though it's the only movie in the world. So you might not be a fan of each Friday the 13th, but within each one of these little entries are it's little universes that are created for us. And each one of them, and this may be a lot of nostalgia talking as well, but I think this really of all film in general is just perfect unto itself. And there is a consistency here. There's also a lack of consistency a remarkable lack of consistency in some on some fronts, but that's not the point. This isn't a linear story, and it's not something that got bogged down like Halloween did with a family connection after part two, and it couldn't shake the shackles, right? This is something yeah. that was set up. They took a left turn with the second film, really the end of the first film, but really the second film. And then from there, that's really all that we needed. So it's a, it's a much simpler foundation, but... With with that foundation, you mentioned knowing what to expect. I I would argue that and say we really didn't know what to expect, because in every Halloween, Michael comes outside part three. Michael comes back and kills, right? And he's mm-hmm. always in the streets of Haddonfield, and he's always mostly using the same implements for the most part. Although on like part five, it gets a little more adventurous, so on and so forth. It gets into some wacky territory later on, but ultimately, it's all very similar. If you look at this. 
each one of these things is different. And people talk about Friday the 13th generically and say Michael or uh, Jason killing camp counselors. Well, that only happens in a couple of these movies. The rest of them, he's not necessarily even in camp. He might not mm-hmm. be even in Crystal Lake. He, he goes to New York City. He goes to space. <laughs> he goes to uh, you know, he's stalking. He goes to hell. This guy's been all over the place. So it is arguably the most diverse series. But what's interesting is that while it was riding hand in hand with Nightmare on Elm Street in terms of cover stories, I mean, he, Jason wasn't the, the centerfold that Freddie was, right? Freddie had album. Freddie had a hotline to call and all the rest of this. They were both in, a, in very uh, great positions to offer audiences something unexpected where the unexpected is what was the enticing aspect that drew us in. So it wasn't just about kills, although everyone focused on that. Fango would run a body count recap. Uh, all these magazines did. Uh, and then we talked about a lot of that stuff, but it was about so much more than that. And I think that some of the magic that we're going to get into as you break down part one here is what it, it really established some of the threads that made this series special throughout the whole thing. But it really was more than a one note one sort of tack series like it's unfairly, I think, credited as being. Man, that was that was biblical right there. That was great. You just got me more excited about this it. than I already was. Jesus. I love it. Reverend Entertainment's correct. Jesus. No, <laughs> like I, I I agree 100%. Uh, you know, we, we do mention kind of the repetition angle to Friday the 13th a lot of times when anyone talks about it. But with that being said, growing up, it was always just magical and such a, a wonderful thing to know, okay, Jason's coming back. What is he going to do this time? So there was that repetition, but at the same time, like you said, you you didn't know what you were going to get. Yeah, and or, it's a f- series where you have like – Outside of one, two, and six, you're right. They they really aren't just at the you know camp anymore. But then you have like Jason fight fighting a girl with telekinesis. Uh, <laughs> Jason wandering Times Square. Jason, you know Jason Jason X, which is like probably one of the most fun remakes of Alien that you can possibly have. Um, Jason being whatever he is in part nine, which I'm not quite sure I still get what they were going for, but I still really enjoy that movie. Like they tried some different things above and beyond the hack and slash uh, formula. I think that's what makes it great is the fact that they did try so many things in the series. I mean, it goes from a film where, you know, a mother wants revenge to a film where a son wants revenge to an imposter, you know, and then you, you, you follow, like you said, basically Carrie meets Jason and it goes off the rails a lot of times throughout the series in a really great way. Uh, I think, I think Justin completely nailed it when he said that you don't really know what you're going to get. Well, it's, it's nice because they, in a way established what we thought it would be about after parts two and three. And then from there, it just kept, it would, it would draw you in and then open a second door. And that's the one they led you into. And it was different every time, ultimately. So there was the, the some of the comfort food elements that we wanted to have there, like Jason, for example, throughout most of them. But at the same time, it was always a different adventure. 
And so the setup, it's almost like those when they so many a lot of these exploitation films that have posters that set you up for one thing. And then you walk in, you're like, what? This is completely not what I expected. And a lot of those can be some of the most amazing discoveries because your expectations are already doing sort of working against you as you're walking in the theater. You're already in the hands of the filmmakers before you sit down to watch Mm -hmm. these things. And then you end up going on this wild ride. And so and, and then also the consistency, the little elements of consistency, especially once you get into the Jarvis cycle within the franchise, I think are really special too, because it wasn't just, again, here's another thing that this thing, this series is branded with, oh, it's just a hack and slash body count, blah, blah, churning these out year after year, trying to make a buck. Well, of course they're trying to make a buck. It's the entertainment business, entertainment industry. There's money that needs to be made, but they weren't doing it mindlessly. They weren't mm-hmm. doing it and just, I mean, they, they were looking for details. They took the time to get Corey Feldman to come back for the beginning of part five so he could cross that bridge into the next film in a way that felt like you were just moving through them as opposed to hitting a wall, having to start again, hit a wall, having to start again. And there are some franchises that frankly are like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway. So let's do this. Let's we've set the table now. Let's I'm going to do a quick synopsis for maybe the four people listening to this that haven't seen Friday the 13th part 1. Um which you know it wouldn't shock me if there are a number of people that have seen like a lot of these movies but have never watched the first one because it's the one that Jason is not in, but you know, if you're one of those uh, handful of people, here's a, a very quick synopsis, and then let's kind of get into the background of like how this movie came to be. Um, so it's blah, 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 set in 1957, a young boy named Jason drowns in the murky depths of Crystal Lake, while the teenage camp counselors supposed to be watching him are off cavorting with one another. A year later, two counselors that have snuck off from the group to get to know one another more intimately are butchered in horrific fashion by an unknown assailant. Marked by tragedy and terror, Camp Crystal Lake shuts its gates. There's attempts to open it throughout the years, but those all come and go by the wayside. There's bad luck. There's unforeseen setbacks. Cut to 1979. Steve Christie is now reset to open the camp, despite the misgivings of all the local town folk. However, as his crew of young, hot-to-trot teenagers get ready for the grand reopening, all of them are picked off one by one in really gruesome fashion. Come to find out a mother's love for her son is only matched by her thirst for revenge on those that she feels responsible, leaving it up to our last lone surviving counselor, Alice, to put a stop to the madness once and for all. Or does she? Gold. Pure gold. Put that on the back of a VHS, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, I think we can't really talk about Friday the 13th without talking about Halloween a little bit. Well, that's see. This is what drives me nuts about. Uh, I know Carpenter was on, I think, the Mark Maron podcast and mentioned that Friday Thirteenth was kind of you know a knockoff of Halloween, and every every site took it and ran with it like he was dissing it. Well, here's the deal: it was always meant to be. Yep. You know, and and I don't even mean that in a negative way. You know, Friday the Thirteenth's existence was completely based off of Halloween's success, mm-hmm. and I think that's a great thing. Absolutely. I mean, Sean Cunningham has never, ever been shy about saying, like, 
We saw how much money Halloween made. I called my friend Victor Miller up and said, we're going to rip off Halloween. You know, Sean Cunningham had worked on uh, Last House on the Left with Wes Craven. But after that, you know, he really, his thing was like, I want to make kid-friendly and family-friendly movies. So he made like Manny's Orphans and Here Come the Tigers. Those are ripoffs of um, the Bad News Bears. Mm -hmm. So he was just like, dude, I got to make a buck. I got to get paid. So he was like, there's this thing that people are spending money on. I think we can do the same thing. And he's never been shy about that. Yeah. Yeah. It never got, they were never dressing this up as anything other than, you know, than, than what it is. And in some ways, I think that that may have that, that frank honesty led a lot of people to sort of dismiss it in a way. But, um, Hey, I mean, you, there, there's so much more here than, what people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. And, and I really think that the Halloween thing, I mean, again, that's, that's set the bar I, over the years. And Jerry, you can speak to this too. The more interviews I've done since I started doing all this so long ago, there's one film that keeps coming up over and over again. And it's Halloween, mm-hmm. no matter what picture we're talking about, no matter what director I'm interviewing or cinematographer mm-hmm. or whoever it might be, I'm sitting across from people every single day that are, t- that are referencing how important that film was. Now, whether it was style or whether it was substance or whether it was just overall impact, I think that it, it has the largest ripples, arguably, in all of horror and certainly uh, slasher, slasher horror. I mean, that, there are others that came before, but the book was written by Halloween. Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, anything from peeping Tom to black Christmas and, and various others, you know, right. had come before it, but nothing, nothing just was the zeitgeist and just inspiration for so many people that Halloween ended up being. I mean, I, I, I say it, uh, you know, again, I don't, it's not just my favorite film of all time. In my, in my opinion, I think Halloween is the greatest movie ever made. Like it is just an, a masterclass in so many things. As far as like, you know, style, I mean, it's it's a film that I could watch to this day over and over and still appreciate it, you know, as much as I did seeing it the first time as a kid and it's scaring the hell out of me. And I I think Sean Cunningham recognized the impact of that film even just a couple years after it had come out. And, you know, he he had said many times, as you know, as uh, you know, you said, Mike, he needed to make a buck. I mean, Sean Cunningham in inter- so many interviews always makes the joke that, you know, I needed to keep the lights on. And, you know, and maybe Friday the 13th had its like kind of origin in that mentality. But I don't even think Sean Cunningham realized what it would eventually become, which is a f- like a series, in my opinion, that's just as important as the Halloween series. Well, I think one thing, too, and I think we get more into Friday the 13th Part 2 next episode. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the Friday, the early Friday the 13th movies did was they actually made the Halloween series kind of correct itself. Not correct itself, but change course a bit in that you went from a very suspenseful, tense, atmospheric, but really bloodless movie in Halloween that if it were to come out today, if you were to cut the nudity would be a PG 13 movie at most. Mm-hmm. And after the success of Friday, the 13th parts one and two, you know, Carpenter said we, he actually went back and did a lot of reshoots from Rick Rosenthal after, cause he said, 
this Halloween too, it's not scary. Like we have to keep up with the Friday, the 13th of the world now, like there is more gore and special effects and bloodshed. We have to do that now. So in some ways, like as much as an influence as Halloween was on Friday, the 13th, it's really the Friday, the 13th movies and the success of that first movie in particular um, is what made slasher movies, become like a lot more effects driven right Mm -hmm. now. And, you know, part of the reason we, you know, have like our Tom Savini's, our K and B's, our Nicotero's, um, our Rick Botines, our Rick Baker's of the world is because these movies really push the boundaries of what special effects could do uh, at that time. Yeah. I think that it came this series was happening in the midst of what is, I think by many, by my account, at least the biggest explosion that the genres ever had, there were so many subgenres developing within horror. It was like this, it was like a city being built and the core of the city, by my estimation, at least in the U S like I said earlier, it began with universal back in the day and a lot of the early independence. And then it's, it's grown into communities and suburbs and all these different things. And there was no more, no period with more blossom than during the eighties. And it was super effects driven. I mean, you talk about the importance of the thing. I think the thing is probably the, the real vehicle behind the effects movement. That's mm-hmm. the movie that really seemed to establish it, even though it was ultimately a bit of a fumble at the box office, it, the, the impact on the business and on, on horror was undeniable. And from there, I think Nightmare on Elm Street was also pushing boundaries. And this is that parallel that I was talking about earlier, where Nightmare on Elm Street had the benefit of existing in a dream world where anything could happen. What Friday the 13th did, where Halloween remained stoic and serious. It always did. Not until H2O did we really see much humor in Halloween, right? Little bits Mm -hmm. here and there. But for the most part, it wasn't until H2O people were cracking wise. But Nightmare on Elm Street had humor and had all the rest of this. But at the same time, it could go anywhere it wanted to because it's literally boundaryless. It wasn't mm-hmm. rooted in anything real outside of people who need to fall asleep. And in Friday the 13th, it was pulling elements from both of those. So you had the darker elements of the Halloween franchise, the stalker slasher elements blended with the outrageous gore and wild things that were happening in Nightmare on Elm Street. But once they established that Jason could do the crazy shit that he was doing in these movies, folding, you know, cutting people in half and throwing them across rooms and pulling them apart, all the rest of this stuff. Once that, once that was established and the audience was allowed to buy into it, it was a playground for effects and gore and all the rest of it. And they, they really aren't as gratuitous of films as a lot of people might think of them as being, but at the same time, what they were doing was very much in tune with what else was happening in horror at the time. So maybe this series speaks to the evolution of the eighties approach to horror in a way that's very special and a bit of a hybrid of a bunch of different elements that were happening around it at the same time. Yeah, most definitely. And, uh, one of the many things that are, that's so great about, uh, I mean, the horror franchises in general, and especially Friday the 13th is that they kind of transcended what, a lot of people thought of horror films in the fact in in the sense that people that maybe weren't uh, necessarily horror fans appreciated them. I mean, some of the people that wanted to be guests on the show that we're going to have on future episodes are primarily known for things not horror. Like our 
our uh, guest for episode two directed Starfish, and that film is about as melancholy and emotional, like a drama heavy look at like you know loss and grief as it comes. And when the idea of talking about these films came up, the director Al was so excited to just be a part of it because these films meant a lot to him. Like these these films aren't just like throwaway you know, here today, gone tomorrow movies. Like they, they touched us like a specific, uh, you know, want in a lot of film goers, you know, lives to where they sought them out, you know, every time one would come out, they would go see it. Like it was a passion of theirs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things is it's, you know, although there's a formula to it, it's a fun formula and you create, you know, past the movie we're going to talk about tonight, you create such an iconic villain um, that you really kind of grow to love um, and kind of, as the movies go on, kind of go to root for. And that's why I think it's a combination of the other thing too, the victims in these movies, like for who the audience was attended uh, intended for, you know, I think it's one of the very smart things that Victor Miller picked up on in his script one of the things that um, John Carpenter and in particular Deborah Hill in the Halloween script, they made characters you really liked, but they also made characters you could easily see yourself being. Um, mm-hmm. I think all of us were probably babysitters at some point as teenagers or, had, you know, have been babysat by someone as a teenager. And I think the same thing with the Friday the 13th, especially part one and part two you could see yourself being these camp counselors. Like they were just young, fun, going out to have a good time, not taking things really serious. And you really grew to kind of, for the short amount of time they're on the screen, you kind of got a really good feel for who they were. And it Mm -hmm. was sad to actually see them killed off. Like you wanted to root for them. And I think that if they just had a cast of really, you know, not throwaway characters who didn't give a shit about, we wouldn't be talking about this movie 40 years later. Like, who would care at that point? Well, I I think the film itself is great, but I think uh, equally as entertaining is the backstory of how it came to be. I mean, everything from like, you know, like we mentioned, Sean Cunningham, you know, just kind of not milking the success of Halloween, but milking the success of Halloween, you know, taking out that big uh, ad in variety that just said Friday the 13th. I mean, the dude had like no idea what he was going to do, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but got so pe- like people so excited, you know, getting Victor Miller who had written these films for him, but was also kind of known for writing soap operas. Soap operas. Yep. Like that's great. That's, that's good because I'm, you know, like I'm a filmmaker too. And I've tried so many times, but I can't make like straight up horror stuff. I'm just not good at it. What I love to make are kind of like relationship drama stuff. That's just mm-hmm. kind of what I'm better, I think, maybe at writing. So the fact that Sean Cunningham was smart enough to like find someone like Victor Miller who knew how to write characters. And and like you, you mentioned, you know, that they're relatable and they are. I mean – who hasn't known somebody like the Kevin Bacon character in the first Friday the 13th? I mean, the guy is like just so chill without any hint of like, he's the kind of guy that is cool without thinking he's cool. Right. You know, he he's, he's the person in your group of friends that you're just like, 
man, I'll never be as cool as that guy. But that guy doesn't know how awesome he is. And you just want to <laughs> hang out in his orbit for just like a little while <laughs> and kind of hope no. some of it rubs off on you. But the fact that Victor, he got Victor Miller to write it and Victor Miller used a lot of like his past stuff, you know, like he said in in many different interviews how he wrote the character of Pamela Voorhees because he didn't have a mother like that. He didn't have a mother that would pretty much take someone down for messing with their son, you know, and as a parent, you know, that kind of stuff, it's easy to latch on to. But there's so many different elements in in just the behind the scenes stuff of Friday the 13th that works. It's that approach that Cunningham and Miller had. It's, you know, just everything. You, you care for the characters and there's such a, like just huge amount of just juicy stuff behind the scenes. I mean, even from like the people who funded the film. I love yeah the, the whole, um, you mentioned the people that funded, like, I love that you have these three quote unquote theater owners from Boston. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I know that we all talk about New York city in 42nd street, very affectionately. I can tell you that, Growing up, we did not go into certain parts of Boston very much called the Combat Zone, um, which was basically um, 42nd Street Light, where it was like really scuzzy theaters, some adult uh, porno theaters, but like very similar to like what you would see in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. And Phil Scuderi and his partners um, Basically, we're the money men for Sean Cunningham behind this movie. And what I love when you kind of read the backstory of the first Friday the 13th is like these tales of Scuderi being out to eat in like the North End, you know, all dressed up, you know, in a suit, tie, whatever, having this big Italian meal and describing like, you got to fucking have a scene where they're going to come in and like hack off his fucking head, like pow, pow, you know, and like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, you have everybody trying to like sit down to their five. Like, what the fuck is like, is this guy mobbed up? Like, what is he talking about right now? And Scuderi like has been was very vocal about saying like how he was the driving force behind um, all like the really stylized murders of the movie overall. And he brought in a friend as it Ron Kurtz, the also the uncredited writer for the first Friday the 13th movie as well, where Kurtz came in and kind of punched up Miller's script and added some humor to it that I know Miller didn't like. Like Kurtz wrote the scene uh, where the cop shows up and is kind of um, giving the kids a hard time for opening the camp up. And I think that scene is hysterical. Like I think it's one of the funnier bits of the movie and it again brings out um, some of the flavor of the counselors overall. And I know Miller, like he's like, he didn't want that scene in the movie, but didn't really have much sway over it. That's one of my favorite things about the Friday 13th series is how many people, uh, insist that they were, you know, they were responsible for so many different mm-hmm. things. <laughs> like it, it, it brings me so much enjoyment to hear all these stories of everyone arguing about who came up with this or yeah. that. Like, you know, I know Savini has said that it was his idea to make Jason look, you know, not quite right. I'm not going to use the phrase that um, Savini uses a lot in in, uh, what he describes Jason. Um, But let's say Savini says he wants he should have the credit for that unique look. Uh, Scuderi says it was him. He's like, I want to make him look like a freak. You know, it's my idea. (laughs) 
Um, I tend to side more with Savini being that he was the makeup artist and kind of like playing around with the design overall. Um, and I only say that because I know Phil Scuderi since passed away and can no longer shiv me if I go against him. Uh, uh, so you know, actually, <laughs> speaking of that, I, I was reading the notes that you wrote for this earlier again. Mm-hmm. And did you write that his son murdered his wife and his yeah, dog? I didn't know if we were going to bring that up. So there's a link in my show notes here. Um where, you know, as I was kind of doing some re- – if you, you know, Google Phil Scuderi and smuggling, some interesting <laughs> articles come up. But I'll read a brief excerpt from this article as I bring it up here. Um, the case of – so this is dated uh, September 10th, 2015 um, do, 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 from the News Herald. Um, the case of a man who claimed he had been drugged with a hallucinogenic called Colombian Devil's Breath – when he was arrested for allegedly killing his wife and dog is continuing towards trial after a circuit court judge deemed him mentally fit. According to court records, da, 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 da. Phil Philip Jude Moran 50 was committed to a mental hospital in May after being found incompetent to proceed with court hearings regarding the death of his wife, 50 year old Melissa Moran. She was found lifeless with a gunshot wound to the back of her head on the back porch of the couple's Southport home in March 2014, along with their slain dog. Officers found Philip Moran in the home at the time in a quote-unquote excited state before charging him with second-degree murder with a firearm. And then if you skip to the end of the article, um, in his letter, Philip Moran claims someone slipped him the drug over a period of several days as an attempt to poison him and obtain his wealth, which he said he inherited after the death of his father, a financier to the Friday the 13th film franchise. So that's just like really... Uh, His father, Philip Scuderi, was one of three principal investors for the first installment in the Friday the 13th film franchise. And actually Scuderi was, I think, involved... Uh, for all of the Paramount movies he was involved in, from what I remember reading. That is madness. That is nuts. And th- okay, what was that called? Colombian what? Colombian Devil's, Devil's Breath. Breath. That sounds like one of those like mythical strains of pot that like some burnout like tells you about in like seventh grade that doesn't yep. really exist. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, Jesus. Um, it is... Uh, yeah, you can't make this shit up. Like, like he, they tried to poison me and obtain my wealth. I think is my the money quote in that article there. And um, yeah, you see this that the, if you click on the link, you, you and I will put this in the show notes. Um, yeah, this looks like a guy that went through some hard times. So, oh man, most definitely. The All right. So, um, so yeah, Friday Thirteenth murder. I am, I am shaken. All I right. don't think anyone expected to turn on the series side and go like, we're going to hear like about dead dogs now, everybody. Um, but yep, that's, that's what the depths will go to. Um, so Scuderi is like, again, like it's just hysterical. Like all the, you know, cause once this movie comes out, it seems like Sean Cunningham couldn't get away from it fast enough. Like he thought he was going to go on to other things. Um, but you know, like obviously it's what he's most well known for. And, you know, uh, what we're going to remember him for. Like the first thing his obituary will one day say is like creator of Friday the 13th series. And Deep Star 6. True. 
Second line. I'll yeah. be the second line. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it seems like for a good while, not he was not like not embarrassed by it, but it seemed like he was just like you know I don't want to be known for this. Right. I'm going to do other things. But in in reality, uh, I mean, man, I, I'd be proud to be known for Friday the Thirteenth. Absolutely. So what is it about this movie? I mean, this little B movie. Cunningham and crew never thought anyone would see it. Yet here we are, almost 40 years later, and we still talk about this movie. It's still insanely popular. I mean, here we are spending like two hours podcasting about it. What is it about the first Friday the 13th that we just love about it so much? Well, for me, the reason that I fell in love with the first film, uh, the parts of it that I I do appreciate very much as a, a kid, honestly, it was Harry Manfredini's score. Mm, like absolutely. it took me years as a kid to get used to Carpenter's Halloween theme. Like it scared the living hell out of me. It still does. Uh, it, but you know, now I try to make it into a joke. Like if I take my kids, you know, to our local museum that has a piano, I try to play the Halloween theme at least mm-hmm. once to freak them out. But I think that's just because, you know, I'm still scared of it. Whereas, the Friday Thirteenth films and Harry Manfredini's score, like it just gets under your skin in the best of ways. I love it. I love every single film that he was a part of, as far as composing. Uh, and and that's as far as the first film. That is the first thing that I fell in love with. But there are so many things about the movie that works, in my opinion. Uh, like you said, the characters are completely relatable. You feel like you either knew those characters or you were one of those characters uh for me for some weird reason i i tend to identify more with like the final girls of films like mm-hmm. i think to this day i think i identify with laurie strode more than any character in film history mm-hmm. but i mean who as someone who grew up kind of uh kind of reserved kind of you know to themselves uh, I think the character of Alice in that first film, it's easy to really get on board with her in her journey. I I agree with that. And I think, too, when we talk about final girls, we often talk about they're the character that didn't have sex or the character that didn't do drugs. They were the level-headed ones. Alice and Laurie Strode kind of blow that out of the water when you go back and look at you know, like Laurie Stroh was like smoking weed with her buddy, you know, driving around Haddonfield. Alice had some weird sex thing with Steve Christie, which I mean, really, who wouldn't? Who couldn't? Who could resist that mustache? But um, and that red <laughs> bandana. But like, you know, she was all like, let's play strip monopoly. Um, and she was into it, man. So like the whole idea that like the final girl has to be this virginal, pure hearted character or else they're going to get killed. Like that was not the Friday the 13th. You know, at least this movie like, no, that doesn't really exist. You know, honestly, I don't think it and this might be controversial. I don't think it ever did exist. And I don't think that it does exist. I think that's kind of a set of rules that maybe the Scream series kind of amplified. But honestly, like Sydney gets uh, down, though. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is as far as listing these roles of what Mm -hmm. slasher films are, I've never subscribed to that mentality that, oh, the final girl has to be this pure virginal person. Like, th- I think that that was kind of like maybe Christians putting that on horror films. Sure. You know, maybe like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it never sat well with me. 
I agree. I agree a hundred percent because I think that this is the similar thing that there's a general, there, there's a wide brush that these films are often painted with. And I'm, when I say these films, I mean horror in general, but let alone slasher films. And I don't, I really don't think that it's similar when people say that scream initiated this slasher boom, a bunch of imitator films. It didn't initiate a bunch of imitator films. How many films came out after scream that were structured like scream? Uh, maybe a couple, I don't know, but it didn't, but there's this general, generally accepted belief that that's the case. And in slasher films, the rules, and I know that there are scholarly books written about this. I know there's one on gender in, in horror films. That's, that's supposed to be really, really good that a friend of mine recommended some time ago, but I don't know that this Jerry ever did exist as any kind of a rule that anyone was looking at. I think that there are gratuitous elements that a lot of producers and directors wanted to include writers wanted to include in what they were making. And I think that if anything, people were, were trying to make sure to include, it would be like, you know, the, the boobs, the blood and things like that. Like those are more, those are more staples that I can say, yes, this is definitely something everyone was kind of doing than the virginal girl is the one that survives because if you look back through history, you're going to find that more often than not, that's not the case. Or, or the, the final boy, final girl, whichever one it might be, it, it's not always someone who, who is the good. It's not always the angel in the room. Yeah, no, that definitely. I, I agree 100%. So, I mean, I think that that is one of the many things that works for the film. And I mean, and I'd be an idiot if I didn't reference how groundbreaking the effects of Tom Savini were, uh, you know, sure there were, you know, Fulci films and all Argento stuff and many other films that had that kind of level of violence to them. But Friday the 13th was in the mainstream. Friday the 13th is something that everyone could see, you know, and you have these amazing effects that were just rooted in, 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 realistic approach uh you know like the first time i saw that arrow go through kevin bacon's throat like i squirmed i still kind of squirmed seeing that and i think that that's a draw to the first film that kind of turned a lot of people onto it it was interesting to see these people that you cared about and you kind of lived vicariously through throughout their journey of that film kind of dispatched in very horrendous ways I mean, yeah, you know, and I might accidentally reference, you know, how like not on board with Christianity. I have many times on the show and I apologize to, you know, believers that listen to us. But I think that that was another thing that kind of turned people onto these movies, like being able to see that stuff and, you know, stuff that like a lot of people like myself were kind of sheltered from. It was, you know, there's. And I'm not jumping the gun and talking about part five prematurely, but that uh, music video by uh, Wolfie's Just Fine, all about, you know, that little boy witnessing Friday the 13th five. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very that was me as a kid. You know, you weren't allowed to watch these movies. I grew up in a very religious home. I, I wasn't allowed. I snuck every single one of them night after night, you know, and I, I think that Tom Savini's effects played a big part in that love. 
Well, because I think you're absolutely right because it was so in your face and you just were not getting that out of any horror movies at the time. Like granted you had, you know, Savini's work on Dawn of the Dead, which is just some beautiful makeup work. You had like the character work done or the makeup work and effects done, you know, in The Exorcist, which was really grotesque. But you didn't have like these sort of like really complex death scenes where you just saw someone butchered on screen like you did until you got to a Friday the 13th and he just did it in these really creative ways it just looks so real and even to this day I mean you watch it on Blu-ray and sure you can kind of see I mean you're not kind of but you can see where Kevin Bacon's head and neck end and where the prosthetic body begins but Still to this day, just watching it in real time, it holds up so much better than a lot of the um, computerized effects and CGI that we see nowadays. Like it's still like fascinating to watch like that death, uh, Annie's death in the forest where she gets her throat cut. Um, Mm -hmm. It still looks incredible and it still makes me cringe every time I watch it. You know, it cannot be... um, dismissed you know to this no not at all it's it's groundbreaking and you know yeah you said you know dawn of the dead and the exorcist which are two amazing amazing films i mean two of my favorites but at the same time this was tom savini going for broke in a way Mm -hmm. that a lot of mainstream audiences weren't ready for in the in the sense that this wasn't a zombie this wasn't you know pazuzu this was the, these characters were us being murdered by someone we didn't know who it was in very gory ways. And that and it it goes with the the power of horror, in my opinion. These films help us look at what we think about death, help us think about what we think about death, you know, mortality. I think that's such an important thing. And that's I think that's why I just to this day am so in love with slasher films like it's. And even like films that have that realistic approach that maybe aren't so much slasher, like uh, watching The Strangers will always scare the hell out of me because mm-hmm. that is my biggest fear. You know, that can really happen. And it, before before Jason comes back time and time again, which I am completely in love with, that first film, you know, it, it wasn't that. It was people like us getting murdered. And that is scary well, and but at the same time, it's very fun to watch as a horror fan. I think that one of the most important elements of this film, for me at least, from my perspective, is that it takes, it involves a lot of enticing elements for younger people. So, as a kid, we can't wait to grow up, right? We can't grow up fast enough. If maybe maybe we weren't all that way, but for me, I just wanted like hell to not be a kid anymore and to get out of the house and to do my own thing. And so it was exciting to consider being a teenager, being a young adult at that time. But also most movies that came before these, before a lot of slasher films, and especially the camp cycle of films, you know, sleepaway camp and the rest, most of them, the, in most of them, the kids or the teens exist within the framework of a society that's still run by adults. Mm-hmm. So there's still, even though Lori and her friends might be in houses, they're not necessarily with adults in the house with them. They're in a neighborhood where police are patrolling. There is a police station nearby. Like in this universe, sort of the cop who rolls up at one point, who isn't there to be friendly, by the way, like most mm-hmm. movies where the cops come up and they're like, you kids be careful or whatever. This guy's like, what the hell are you guys doing here? 
And like, right. we don't stand for no weirdness around here. Like he's just a gruff, unfriendly person. The adults in this movie prey on the young. And this starts at the beginning when she gets in the truck with that guy and he grabs her ass as she's climbing in the passenger seat. Right. As she's mm-hmm. climbing in there, everyone in the bar in that restaurant gives her the evil eye. And even uh, Steve and his relationship with Alice is kind of predatory because he, he can at tell one point she's... he reaches out and like touches her in a way that looks very uncomfortable. And you see her a l- like move back from that a little bit and her lack of investment in what he's interested in, despite the fact that she, but it's very natural. Like for a movie that's written off so easily, she had this night where clearly they had something that happened. She's drawing a picture of him. They problem who knows what may have happened that evening but this is the next day and now maybe she's back in reality we all know that moment of waking up after something and going like geez okay back to reality what have i done and trying to get your you know collect yourself and figure out what to do next so my point is that one of the most effective elements here is the simple idea of putting young people isolating them in a place that's universal for anyone just about who lives in the United States. We all have woods near us, or at least we all have seen camps, maybe gone to camp or something like that. It's not the ocean where most of the country has never been there. It's the woods. So it's like Halloween. The, the, the monster now exists in suburbia. Well, here it's even bigger than suburbia because ultimately the majority of our nation is wooded. And now this is where this is happening. So you're isolating these people. You're making them, allowing them to exist like people that age actually do. You don't have a bunch of highfalutin. There's like some of these movies, especially the once the slasher cycle really got underway, some of the knockoffs would have like the wealthy friend, Mm -hmm. the jock friend, the things like that. Like this doesn't have, it's just young people being young people and having discussions about those things in very real ways. So you're, it's kind of similar to what Corman did when he decided to say, hey, fuck the Hollywood system. Because all you're doing is making movies for old people, starring old people. What 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 do all these young actors got to do? How about we bring them in and we start making movies that speak to them? And how about I listen to what they say? And how about I take that and I run with it? This movie establishes a similar thing where you're in the world of youth. And that world of youth is being disrupted by something that is shrouded in mystery. And because it's set up without any understanding of who's doing what or why, the first time you watch this movie, it can't help but be a complete mystery until the very end. And this, and that's rare in movies because there's a reputation that precedes these things after this one, especially after part two and part three. But for this one, everybody who sits down the first time to watch it, unless someone has spoiled it for them, there's no way you're going to call what happened at the end. Right. Right. And people, you know, and I think that sense of isolation you mentioned, um, Justin, is such a key. It's what Miller wanted in his script, and it's part of the reason he didn't want that cop scene in there, because he wanted it, he wanted the audience to feel like there is no help coming, there's no one around that can reach out to these kids and protect them once they're in this situation. But I thought that was already done wonderfully um, by setting up this real sense of space and distance from where the campsite was located compared to the rest of the town. And I thought that was set up wonderfully by Annie kind of getting it first in the truck and then later in the Jeep. You kind of get a sense of like, these kids are like really on their own. And I think being a 
teenager at that time going in to watch this movie for the first time, you know, that could be a very scary thing. It's not suburbia where every house looks the same and you know the neighborhood like the back of your hand. Um, you know, it's not like a Springwood where, like they said, every town has an Elm Street. You know, the woods can be a really scary, unknown terrifying place where every sound takes on a whole life of its own. You don't know your way around. All the trees start to look the same as one another and it's very easy to lose your bearings, you know, and then to add on top of that, all of a sudden, you know, you don't know these people you're there with and they start going missing one by one. And like that makes for a very terrifying situation. And I think that's why, Part of the reason why the movie works so well is just the setup of it is just a great idea. Well, it's them versus the dark. It's mm-hmm. these it's these kids versus the dark. And for most of us who were seeing this for the first time, we were very young. And I can, again, speaking for myself, very much afraid of the dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, and, and so it's it's that unknown environment around you, like you just said, where... No matter where, where, even if you're staying at your relative's house in the summertime and the windows are open, you don't have to be in the woods to hear a stick crack outside and immediately your mind's going to flash to the worst Mm -hmm. possible scenario. Mm -hmm. This is a whole movie that plays on that and does so brilliantly. And then you add in the weather on top of it, the inclement weather, the rain, once that starts coming down, which isn't just dramatic effect. It also mutes the sounds of everything happening around them, further isolating them with this white noise Mm -hmm. that they can't shut off. And it really puts them in the perfect little snow globe of chaos without any clue what the hell to do, because this is day one that they're there, that this is all going down. This is, they they have no idea what the terrain around them is at all. Mm -hmm. So what do we think of, Oh, sorry, Jerry, you jump in my friend. Oh no, no, go ahead. I I was probably going to go in the same uh, path that you were. So go for it. We talk about, you know, we talk, we've talked about the teenage characters a lot so far in this movie. Let's talk about the, there are only a couple adults, but one of them is one of my all time favorite characters in any movie anywhere. And that is Crazy Ralph. Crazy Ralph. Ralph. Yeah. You're going to camp blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph. Get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. I'm a messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. Who are you? What do you want? God sent me. Get out of here, man. I got to warn you. You're doomed if you stay. Go. Go. Crazy Ralph is one of my favorite parts of that first film and the second one. But Crazy Ralph is, you know, Justin mentioned you know, how kind of sketchy all the adults were around them. And Crazy Ralph is kind of like that one that's just been left in the sun a little too long, mm-hmm. you know, and has his brain <laughs> fried. And like every, as a kid, every scene that like, every time that I would see Crazy Ralph watching that first film, it, like when he would pop up, like 
I just love it. Like, I, I can't remember the actor's name, but that guy was just so on fire with just being scary as hell. It's crazy. Ralph is the scariest part of that first film for me. Because, I mean, my, who hasn't who doesn't have an uncle like that? My understanding, too, is that crazy Ralph was not too far off from the actor who played him. Oh, and boy. That, like everybody on set was kind of like, we tried to avoid him as much as possible. I am trying to look him up right now. Um, Walt Gorney is the gentleman who played him and he actually had like a pretty um, distinguished career as a stage and screen actor Really? Um, so it wasn't like he was just in this movie and then done it wasn't just he Crazy has, Ralph he wasn't was Crazy, crazy Joe Ralph. and Crazy Peter yeah. <laughs> and the other roles um, <laughs> no he um, actually was in Endless Love he was in obviously the Friday the 13th um he had a you know pretty pretty wide uh, vast career. I think mostly on stage, but I just love like all the town knew this guy. They're like, oh, this guy again. He was apparently married. Like he wasn't just this weirdo loner. Like someone looked at Crazy Ralph and said, "That is the wagon I want to hitch up with for the rest <laughs> of my life." Right there, um, the scene where Alice opens up the pantry door and he comes yeah. bursting out, like you're all dude. Like what? How long was he there for? Like it was just like the things like. <laughs> It just keeps me up. Like, what if no one ever opened that pantry door? The whole movie <laughs> goes down. The cans of peaches. Yeah, the next day, like crazy Ralph walks out, like, ah shit, too late. Didn't get to warn him. It's like um, tomatoes running down his chin. Just it's fucking brilliant. It's just like it's yeah. so good. And it's so strange. It it really sets up this whole town like a Twin Peaks kind of scenario mm-hmm. where the where every character is something unique and every character is something off. Because well, every adult, every adult that they encounter, there's something strange about them, and so it further lends to that feeling of them being isolated and in, and in an environment that they can't trust. Well, when there were talks of the Friday Thirteenth uh, TV show, not the one from the '80s, but they they talked about doing a new show a few years back. Yeah. That was one of the things that a lot of people were complaining about, but I thought would be a good approach is kind of having that Twin Peaks vibe to it, because like you mentioned, all of the the adults are kind of odd and kind of eccentric like that. You really don't know what's going on with a lot of the adults that you encounter in that first film. And I think that that mixed with like Jason would make for a really good kind of episodic, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. show. I think they, in the remake in 2009 and it was just not handled very, it was no subtlety to it, but they tried to set up this kind of idea that the townsfolk knew about Jason mm-hmm. and knew to leave him alone. Like there was that one scene, uh, where like, you yeah, yeah, it just was done poorly. Like that particular scene was done not well, but I think no, you no. could have easily done something with the show, even just like a limited series for 10 episodes. But the oh, mythology would... at this time, even in, even in the first one you, that you mentioned in your synopsis earlier, the townsfolk did know that something strange had been happening out mm-hmm. there because over the years, time and again, people had made a similar effort. So it's a hybrid of the townsfolk maybe not being welcome to outsiders, but also like this is the one thing that draws people here. It's like people who, who live in Plainfield, Wisconsin. The only reason anyone who isn't family is going to Plainfield, Wisconsin, is to see Ed Gein's missing headstone and where, sure. his, where his farmhouse sat. Like mm-hmm. this town is now defined by this guy and the people there resent the hell out of it. They can't stand mm-hmm. that people go to the hardware store to buy a Coke where Ed did what he did. And it's a similar thing here where the town 
they're talking about warning about the things that didn't don't didn't they tell you what happened so they're not necessarily like damn you kids get out of here kids it's just like this has done nothing but bring hell raining down upon us for decades and i sincerely hope this isn't going to happen again and then of course it does and it happens time and time again Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the point where they changed the town's name in the sixth movie. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the truck driver that says to, um, you know, that says to Alice, like, you know, uh, do 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 do. Crystal Link, uh, Camp Crystal Link is jinxed. And then, you know, when Alice kind of teases him, you know, he gives him the whole, he gives her the whole story. You know, he he's the one that runs down the mythology. The boy murdered in fifty, uh, the kids murdered in fifty eight. The boy who drowned the year before. All the fires. Um, he talks about how the water went bad, and he's just kind of like you kids. He calls them dumb kids, know it alls, head full of rocks. You know, but at the same time, he does doesn't really like prevent the girl from going on her way. Like it's almost like as much as you might warn somebody, you're still kind of drawn to the horror of it all as well. Mm. See, I, I think that that speaks on maybe a lot of things that the, that first film doesn't get credit for, you know, like I'm listening to all of us talk in depth about these really important things about the film and it's 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 making like me even rethink the first film in ways that there's a lot going on there in the best of ways. Like mm-hmm. it is actually for being Friday the Thirteenth, the first film. It is a very layered and thought out film. It is. It is, and I think you know because it's not. There was no other films in their own series to fall back on, or they could say like, if nothing else. We know we have this formula that works for us. It was them trying to create something with, you know, a template in place, but still having enough kind of pride to want to make it your own. Um, So we've talked for almost 90 minutes now, and we have not even mentioned (laughs) the name Pamela Voorhees yet. Oh, boy. Which is stunning, which I think anyone who's listening to this is like, we're just as shocked as you are, listeners, right now that we've gone this long. Okay, but I think that was subconsciously intentional because like Pamela Voorhees uh, missing from our conversation so far, that is basically what she is in the entire film right up until that end. And that is that is a lot of people love it. But that is actually the one thing about the first film that has always been extremely hard for me to get on board with Mm -hmm. because it's so solid. It's so solid. It's so layered. You care about these characters. There's so many red herrings. There's so many things where you think this person, that person, you know, this person, that person, you think that, you know, the killer is this person. No, it's not. But when it, when you find out who the killer is, you know, still to this day, I watch it and I'm like, Oh, you know, it's somebody that we had no idea existed, you know, and, and I hate to word, use the word let down because I'm not slamming the movie because it's an important film and I, I love it. But like I find myself kind of even as a kid, I watched it and I was just like, oh, like that's Ooh. that's the explanation. But, but here's like, the thing, though. Here's the thing to huh? counter that that I would encourage you to consider. This is not her movie. Mm-hmm. This is the kids movie. And in life, when you're if you're in the middle of somewhere that you've never been before, the odds are against the killer being someone that, you know, if Mm -hmm. you're if you're if we were um, 
if there was a reveal of her early on that set her up in a way that would pull the movie out of the hands of the main characters and out of the kids. And that's what I love about this movie, as opposed to by default, everything that came after part two, especially. And so many of these franchises is at the beginning of Halloween, Halloween opens with telling you who the killer is. Mm -hmm. It opens with that. So you are automatic. You actually start spending time with Michael before you spend time with anybody else in that film. In this one, you spend the entire running time doing nothing but investing in the characters. And contrary to its reputation, it is a movie that lets you invest in those characters. And so as a result, the person at the end is it's, it's going to be a curveball no matter what the red herring thing is a natural thing to set up and try to like keep you guessing. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what keeps us locked into it. But I love the fact that we had no idea who it was in this one because the backstory didn't give us enough information to even indicate who it would be. You know, a boy died. So, you know, it's not the boy, but these things continue happening. It could be literally anybody who is there. It just had happened to be her. But like I said a minute ago, if they would have set her up from the beginning in a clearer way, if they would have had her standing out and lift the clown mask off her face and she has the knife in her hand from the get go. Oh yeah. I lit those fires back in 60, whatever. Well then of course we're going to assume it's her. And then we're just going to be waiting for her to show up. Don't you think that that works in favor for the film? You know what? It doesn't tip its hand that way. Honestly, I, honestly, uh, let me just say this earlier this year, my wife and I were watching Halloween five cause she hadn't, she hadn't seen it. And, uh, you know, uh, when we got together, one of the first conversations, she had only seen the first film in a lot of my favorite franchises. So we would spend weeks binge watching an entire, oh, an entire awesome. franchise to go. Oh, it's, it's been amazing. And so we went through Halloween and Halloween five came on. Uh, and it's always been a film that I adore 70% of it and can't stand 30%. And I spent most of my life despising the character of Tina. My wife watched it and it's one of her favorites in the entire series. And we were talking about it and she was like, well, why do you hate Tina? It's basically Dahlia, which is my daughter. And I started thinking about it Aww. and all the reasons, all the reasons that I couldn't stand Tina growing up, I found kind of endearing now. And it made me reevaluate it. And I wrote this article called I was wrong. And mm -hmm. honestly, Justin, after what you just said, I will happily go on record saying that, I was wrong. I have never thought of that ending reveal the way that you just explained. And on like, I, I, I'm kind of taken back by it. You're completely right. That's the magic of the, of this film franchise is that it spends a lot of time, even after the formula was established and Jason and all of that, it lets you, it lets kids be kids. And mm -hmm. I think that was a really important, it's a similar thing to what Goonies did for me as a kid to what monster, especially, Oh my God, monster squad was revolutionary for mm -hmm. me when I was little is, is that it wasn't adults coming to save the day. The adults, if anything, were in the way. And in these movies, the youth have to survive on their own, but they're also doing it within usually the framework of a pretty fun environment or some kind of a setup where they enjoy themselves that way. I I've never been into the super bleak side of a lot of horror, Right. And, and I enjoy, you mentioned you, you don't like making horror films, Jerry. Like I can't make a gritty, that's not you because you grew up watching things that weren't reveling in the mire, the, the sort mm -hmm. of like ether underneath all of it, because these kinds of movies understand that none of us are black and white and that everyone has degrees and layers of personality to us. It's nice when you see a movie, when you're a kid that shows 
kids on screen, not just showing them on screen, but also, and yeah, there are victims throughout these films, but also shows them being very powerful. You want to talk about getting further into the series, and I don't want to spoil what you have coming up here, but look at Reggie the Reckless. Mm-hmm. Reggie's a badass. Reggie's one of my favorite all-time characters in horror. And I yeah. think he's he's great for so many reasons, but he's arguably, well, he, look at Tommy Jarvis. Look at part four. Look what Tommy does in that film. The, the maturity that he has in that moment to do whatever he, you know, for him to arrive at that moment at the end to make happen what he made happen is remarkable for a uh-huh. kid that age. And he's probably about the same age as Reggie is down the line in the films. But these are kids who were more than just like so, like sidecars to, to adults, which is what 90% of kids are in movies of all genres, not just horror is that kids are just there to be in the scene to establish a couple has a history or there's someone who's suffering outside of the parents because of their conflict or whatever it might be. These movies are free of most of that. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a really, really valuable element for young people to be exposed to them and why we grasp onto them in a lot of ways like we might not have for other movies. Like I remember renting Friday the 13th part three and Greystoke Lord of the jungle at the same time. And I can't tell you a fucking thing that happens in Greystoke Lord of the Mm -hmm. jungle. And it's a much bigger budget movie that I'm sure was much more celebrated. So Mm -hmm. anyway, that youth approach right there, I think makes all the difference in the world and to hand a movie to them, for them to, for Cunningham to hand this film to those characters and those teens, I think is the magic that made this fucking thing hum. And Justin, to oh. your point, to your point right there too, of, of it being the kid's movie, at the end of the movie, Alice, it's up to Alice, her own wit, her own strength, her own, like, I'm going to use whatever is on hand yeah. right now yeah. just to survive. Even in Halloween, like Laurie Strode is able to survive long enough for Dr. Loomis to show up and put six bullets in Michael. Like it's not ultimately Laurie, the teenager that gets to do Michael in. Right. Um, she's able to just basically, survive and fend him off long enough so that at the end an adult can come into the picture and take care of things and to your point like this is just a teenage girl um who is able to you know through her own wits and through her own strength you know kind of overcome the big bad at the end of the movie which how powerful is that how powerful Mm -hmm. is this i mean well i think that's oh go ahead no go ahead man Oh, no, I was just going to say that I think that's where a lot of, uh, quote unquote, final girls kind of gets a bad rap. They're not like Alice and Lori. They weren't badasses whatsoever. And that is what makes it so magical and so profound to watch their journey. They're not badasses. They use every ounce of their brains and and the the kind of thirst to survive to try to outsmart the villain. It's not. And, and I love the alien film so much, but it's not Ripley with a machine gun. You know what I mean? Like right. it's, it's, it's the girl next door, you know, that maybe was always overlooked as far as, you know, a lot of stuff being the one that actually uses their brains and their courage to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, if they're working at a camp, they care about kids. And so there's an mm-hmm. element of community investment in that anyway. So they're already by default more than what a lot of the slasher movies did where they just send a group of partying teens, go to the whatever and encounter something they won't ever forget or something like right. that. Like the, uh, so many movies set up the kids as assholes from the start. 
None I think of these that's kids more are... of a modern thing. I do think that that's something you see more um, post Scream, and I love the characters in Scream, yeah. but 2000 and beyond, and maybe it's an age thing, but I'm like, these kids are assholes, and I can't wait well, for them to get killed. Yeah, but look back at like April Fool's Day. If you go back and you start picking apart um, Slaughter High, th- th- a lot of the young people that are presented are not only unlikely partners, unlikely bedmates, I guess you could say, but a lot of them are just people that are just not. It's almost like they're, when it became, when body count became a thing, and I think that that's, an, that's something that's really unavoidable for films, especially like you're talking about, the, the 2000s and beyond, mm-hmm. where at this point everything is so referential for what came before uh, in, in the slasher world in many cases, is that the, at this point where the kids were, um, oh my God, I completely lost my train of thought. Well, the kids are on their own and good kids, like people you yeah. like. They were caring, like you said. They were going to work with children. So even though there was that party element, they're trying to like give back a little bit as well. Yeah, and so there's a natural investment in them from the start, from the get go, as as a result of that. And they aren't superhuman. Look at Amy Steele's character, Ginny, in Part Two. Mm-hmm. She gets so terrified she pees her pants right. in the mm-hmm. climax of that film. I mean, that's, that's, that's a humiliating moment for many people, but we weren't, no one was feeling humiliated for her in that because you loved her so much by that point, mm-hmm. because you so cared for her. You were just terrified about the reveal that it was going to make of where she was hiding. Right. So that's, that's different than a lot of other setups that may have come, but the, the natural, you hit it right on the head with these are not badasses. These are just people. And that's right. the best that the best kind of stories I think are just people. I think that speaks on the power and the uh, kind of just lasting of the impact of the first film. One thing I want to hit on is the idea of like transference with Mrs. Voorhees. Um, her son drowns when she's a cook at the camp and she blames the counselors, but given Jason's disabilities, given who Jason was, like my understanding was he wasn't actually a camper. It was just her son. And she spent all of these years blaming the counselors for not looking out for him. But as far as I knew, like she should have been the one looking out for him. She blamed the counselors for it, but he wasn't under their care. Um, so they were free to do whatever once the kids went to bed, like, and Jason kind of wandered off from his mother's care. At that point, yet she spent all these years, it drove her crazy, and she took all of that grief, that pain, that rage, that sense of loss she felt, and rather than work through it, put it on her own shoulders, she pinned it all on these kids who she wrongfully blamed for it um, until it all boiled to a head you know, 30 or 20 something years later uh, when she confronts the reopening, the, the camp reopening. Jason, I am. You see, Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Where's Mr. Christie? Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, 
innocent Jason. My only child. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him. Well, I think as parents, uh, unfortunately, a lot of us tend to do that. You know, if we make these huge mistakes and maybe missteps in parenting, And instead of kind of looking inside ourselves and saying, you know what, I could have done better with that, you know, maybe we project it, you know, we we project it on anything and everything that we could put our hands on because we don't want to stop and think that these wonderful, uh, you know, blessings that Mm -hmm. we've been given in, in the form of these children, I mean, I'm not trying to get mushy, but having kids is the most beautiful thing in the world. I mean, these, these wonderful things that, you know we've been blessed with that we let down. And as a parent, that's something that is heartbreaking to you to know you very much let your kid down. So where Miss Voorhees states, like, you know, yeah, it's just projecting her own failures on Alice and everyone else. I, I am, I am a parent who, who never feels adequate. And mm-hmm. I can tell you that there isn't a day in my life that goes by that I feel like I've done all that I should or that I mm-hmm. could for him. And I think, I, I don't know that that's built into everybody who has a kid, but I would imagine it's not an entirely uncommon scenario. And so I think that I, I hadn't really honestly considered the responsibility factor in this film before. You mentioned that mm-hmm. about whether he was attending camp or not. I I haven't thought much about that, but that's interesting that she, to consider it from that angle where she's projecting that on other people and and that continues all the way up through to the end and that, um, it, and it, it begs so many questions about her. I think that she's one of the unsung, uh, real, real icons of the series that have gotten the least amount of attention. It's similar to, in many ways, like Dr. Loomis in Halloween to draw that line again. We know so little about them, mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. It, but yet they're so pivotal to what we're dealing with there. And it makes you wonder, does she live in the area? Is she... Does she live in town? Do the townsfolk suspect her? Is If there was to be a prequel to the first Friday the 13th, I think it could be a really fascinating story about her and about her time with Jason. And if she was willing to do all those insane things after he went, who knows what she was doing while he was alive? Right. Who knows why he even looked the way that he did? Who know, I mean, what else is there to that story? I think that's right. something that we can grasp onto as well because we love to hypothesize like we are right now about all these elements. This hands us that from the very beginning, and it's tantalizing. I think Almost the little definitely. that we know is that she still lived in the area because Steve Christie recognizes her right away, um, right before his death. He's, oh, it's you. Like, what are you doing out here? But it, it, similar to maybe a crazy Ralph where she was maybe just a fixture in the town and she was yeah. defined by this one event that happened to her. Like she lost her son because he drowned in a lake. And Oh, by the way, like he was like a special needs child. And that's completely what defined her. And that was put her like put around her neck, like a millstone, but no one ever reached out to her after that. There was no other mm-hmm. friend. There was no other family. No one really even gave her any consideration at all. Um, and it just like, well, so now you have you two go? decades of seething rage. 
Yeah, where do you go when grief and trauma isn't properly, you know, diagnosed and treated, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, um, just based on the line of work I do, it's they go to very dark places that sometimes it's really hard to pull themselves out of. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I just think that she's a fascinating character, aside from being just iconic and kind of giving birth to uh, one of the most iconic characters in all of 80s horror cinema. Uh, there's just like a real pathos there and that real sense of loss, uh, that real sense of grief where she's not justified in what she does. You never feel that for a moment. But as an audience member, you can kind of understand what drove her to do what she did. Yeah. And she further it plays further because she she looks like everyone's grandmother. Mm-hmm. I think I think that the casting choice of her in that role, not just because of what the actress had done historically, because I know she was a celebrated soap soap actress and all mm-hmm. of that, but also just the way she looked and the way she acted, the how sweet she was when she when you first kind of bump into her. There are moments of a natural trust that are built in there. Mm-hmm. Here again, it's taking that thing like the things that are around you may not be trusted. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us to consider that there may be some other motive at play here. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and like to, like to your point, like Betsy Palmer, who took on the role, but she took on the role because it was a thousand bucks a day for 10 days and she wanted to buy a car that was 10 grand, which I think is great. She's like, eh, no one's going to see this piece of shit movie, you know, like, and I get a new car out of the deal. Like I'm on, um, her taking on this role once the movie came out and was a hit, like it sparked real outrage. Like Gene Siskel, um, I called him in my notes, like the godfather of doxing. Like he was like, spoil the ending on on uh, Siskel and Ebert for people. Um, and then he was like, here's Betsy Palmer's home address. Write to her and tell her, you know, how horrific, how awful she is. She's in this, like, piece of garbage movie, and she should be ashamed. Like, he dude, that's... Gave- he gave people her home address. Yes. Like if, if that happened these days, he would be prosecuted mm-hmm. and he spoiled the film and not, he not only spoiled it, he purposely spoiled it and reveled in it. Yeah. That review, the next paragraph after spoiling it, he says basically like I'm paraphrasing, but I'm glad I spoiled this piece of crap for you. Like, you know, like how screwed up is that? They did a similar thing with Silent Night, Deadly Night when that came out, and they called out the filmmakers and everyone who was involved with it. They were so extremely harsh on it, and with their review ultimately led to the film being pulled from theaters because that alerted a bunch of family groups to it, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden the picketing began and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so hilarious that really that's that was the spark where the mythology around the notorious silent night, deadly night was born. And I think it was a similar thing with Friday the 13th. It wasn't just the ad campaign. It wasn't just the way that they were selling it to people in theaters with trailers. It was also, this comes out. What is more exciting for, especially a a young person than fruit than yeah, exactly. Than than some stodgy guy, you know, sitting in his hoity toy suit saying like, this is, this is abysmal and this is a crime against humanity. And I think that, uh, I so thought it was funny that when I did the Silent Night, Deadly Night documentary for the Shout Factory Blu-ray, at the end of it, I specifically thank Siskel and Ebert. That way it <laughs> appears on both of their IMDb pages mm-hmm. as a special thanks because <laughs> I, did, I, I didn't want them to ever be truly free of that moment mm-hmm. and what they did to that film because at once it completely slaughtered it 
but it also gave birth to its second life that was to happen on video. And with uh, the resurrection screenings from that point forward, that continues to this day. Now we have a, a, a Billy action figure and a deluxe Blu-ray, <laughs> Blu yeah. not to mention the rest of the films in the franchise. So anyway, yeah, it, it's kind but of you funny. probably wouldn't have like five movies in a reboot in that franchise if Siskel and Ebert didn't go right. out of their way to like champion right. not seeing the movie. Exactly. Um, so that's what's what's blows my mind is like it would have, you know, come and gone. It would have had a little bit of a shelf life on VHS. And then, you know, maybe it would get a blurb in a couple books about slasher movies of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. kids love like, hey, as you know, like we talked about before, like reading Fangoria magazine, Jerry not being able to go out and see these movies. I, I had the same kind of family. Like I could read the books, but I was not allowed to go to like R-rated movies or watch R-rated movies. So you snuck out and you, you know, you went to your friend's basement or you waited till your parents went to bed and you snuck downstairs and you kind of watched as many of these as you could before the sun came up. Mm -hmm. my, par my parents didn't take me to see R-rated movies, but they didn't stop me. I mean, after a certain age, mm -hmm. granted, I wasn't like five watching these things, but they, they never stopped me from wanting to see them after I, my, cause they knew my interest in the monster stuff from the time I was really, really little. Mm -hmm. And so I th they, my dad would say like, you know what this is going to do? And I'd be like, I know. And he'd say, are you sure? And I'd be like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I'd rent it. And yes, of course, I would have nightmares for like a week straight. Right. Or I would, I would wake up screaming or couldn't go to sleep at night. And my dad would have to come and like lay next to me until I could be calm enough to fall asleep. And it was me doing this to myself over and over again as I was mm -hmm. exploring these films. So they weren't, they, they weren't uh, dismissive or, or you know, they, they weren't prohibitive in terms of you can't see this. It was more like, well, you're going to learn the lesson one way or the other. And, and strangely, my parents and I were never really super close. And so I, I really kind of introduced myself to everything as I was coming up. They were good. They were fine parents, but I learned all about life through film and through books and through yes, music. Same. Those are the three things. That's where my education came. My dad never sat down and like talked to me about what's important to consider when you're talking to a girl uh -huh. or whatever it might be like. So I have these, I know, admittedly kind of like romantic notions about most things. And, uh, and it, it's really born in that, but for, in a way it was a gift because my parents were so hands off with me. I was allowed to venture into these, into the woods, I guess we could say for a pointed reference. And I could explore that on my own and take out of it whatever I wanted to or whatever I was forced to, and then deal with it, process it, and decide if I wanted to tiptoe back in again. Mm -hmm. And I was really appreciative of that. So it wasn't necessarily forbidden fruit. It was more like an educated reference to the past when I know something kicked me in the ass, and yeah. yet I, then I went back to the well again. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think that's, and I think to your point, like I very much, like it's we, I think Justin, Jerry, and I, you, all three of us maybe grew up in the era that was, there was not like helicopter parents, where it was like, on a summer day, the door opened. We were said, get out of the house, come back for lunch, then go back out again till it's dinner time, then go back out again and uh, come when the sun, come back in when the sun goes down. But you got to do so much more exploring and so much more growing up on your own and discovering things on your own. And I, you know, not to get all model in here, but I think that's like a really beautiful thing that a lot of kids kind of miss out on today. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, not to get super depressing or, or kind of 
uh, drag us on. But I mean, I, I grew up on my dad's side in a very religious upbringing, but on my mom's side, when I'd go visit her for summers at a time, my mom was uh, married to a very abusive man. Mm-hmm. And one time we flew all the way from California to Arizona to spend the summer with her. And we got there and the guy had broken her back. Oh. So she was so she was in the hospital basically the whole summer. And she knew that this guy would basically prey on me because I was oh such kind of an uh, emotional little kid that I would she would give me enough money to pretty much stay in the theater from, you know, morning until evening. So mm-hmm. I experienced and this is pre Columbine, obviously. So they didn't really card kids, you know, it, mm-hmm. it really wasn't that big of a deal. So I saw, you know, Friday the 13th, part seven, Halloween four and five at like the age of like seven and eight by myself. Mm-hmm. Like I saw Child's Play and Die Hard opening night by myself. Like that, that was my education. Like Justin said, you know, I wasn't close to my dad at all. I mean, I've never been, we're just completely different people. So I, I learned everything I know from basically, you know, the streets, you know, uh, my brother, movies, books, like that was, I mean, like Justin said, very educational. That was my upbringing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so I lost my dad when I was 19 and he didn't share a love for these kind of horror movies, but we would spend like every Saturday watching like the creature double features, the old Mm -hmm. universal movies, the old hammer horror movies together. Our big thing to watch together was like the three stooges. Like we would watch three stooges shorts together every weekend uh, for hours at a time. Like that was our, our thing. But in terms of like discovering horror movies like this, like that was kind of on my own sneaking around type of deal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why I think, you know, Jerry, you mentioned, you know, like your your son um, talking about his love for these movies. And I you know, had my daughter like tweeting out her reactions to part six with me on Friday night, which I thought was so much fun. Like, mm-hmm. it's just such a blast to share these movies um, with my daughter and get her reaction from them um, and how much she's like enjoying discovering them on her own. Like, I think we're going to well, do- it's kind of. It's kind of selfish in a way as far as, uh, you know, I'm speaking for myself Mm -hmm. in the sense that I almost get to live my childhood again with Mm -hmm. my kids loving these things, but with them having a parent that actually cares about their love for these things. Yes, absolutely. It is getting to see it like almost for the first time all over again and getting that new perception. And it's so much fun. And, you know, my wife and I joke with one another, like if our daughter ever wants to rebel, she'll become like a, you know, Reagan type conservative Republican. Like that's how (laughs) she would rebel against us. Um, So speaking of children, let's talk about one child in particular. Let's talk about the end of Friday the 13th and our introduction to Jason Voorhees. That scene, I and, and you know, I love Brian De Palma with a passion. I mean, mm-hmm. top ten director of all time. Like I, I love Blowout, so many De Palma movies, and obviously I'm leading to Carrie with that that mm-hmm. last scene of Friday. 13th. But with that being said, I think the ending of Friday the Thirteenth blows the ending of Carrie oh, out of absolutely. the water. It's basically the same fake out, you know, jump scare thing, but in the best of ways. No one is expecting that. Mm-hmm. And it is to this day, even with my you know issues with the whole reveal, to this day, I think is one of the best endings in horror. Mm-hmm. 
even you know a few years ago, the Brattle Cinema in Cambridge and Harvard Square did a um, back-to-back of Friday the 13th and My Bloody Valentine. Um, and Friday during Friday the 13th, like the audience laughed during most of the movie. Um, they kind of treated it as camp. Um, and at the end of the movie, like that jump scare at the end of the movie – I think it was an audience of people that had maybe never seen the first one because they screamed their heads off. Like it still worked. Um, People were out of their seat. Like to this day, it still holds up. I think is one of the, like you said, Jerry, one of the best scares. What a, just a phenomenal moment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I know um, man, uh, Fredini talks about the music for it and having it like he purposely wrote this music that was so calm and peaceful he wanted to restore this sense of tranquility and you're just waiting for the credits to roll like the big bad has been vanquished the killer's been killed and now you're going to have this sense of normalcy be restored and his music was to reflect that peacefulness and was to go on and on and almost like people would kind of get up and get ready to leave the theater like all right it's over it's time to go and just when it's gone you think it's gone on a beat too long that's when um, Jason jumps out of the water and it just gets the audience every time. And it's just so well done. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's perfect. It really is. It's, and it's the exclamation point that you need audiences to leave with that kind of salivating for whatever's next. And they, they weren't, a, it wasn't called Friday the 13th part one. Mm-hmm. It was just Friday the 13th. So they didn't necessarily know, of course, that there would be any kind of follow-ups or anything. And this certainly wasn't the age of like part 10, 12, 14. Right. But, but at the same time, at the end of Carrie, it was a, it was a huh moment. But mm-hmm. at the end of this one, it's like Jason has been the invisible motivator for the entire film. He's really, in a way, the engine that makes the whole thing run mm-hmm. because he, he's the reason for it all happening. And then for him to finally make an appearance like that. And then, of course, audiences are going to walk out laughing, sort of like, you know, nervously chuckling, talking with each other, buzzing. And that's exactly what you want the people in line out in the lobby to be hearing as people are walking out of seeing mm-hmm. a movie. And then that's what builds that word of mouth. And, and there's so many great, perfect, t- perfectly timed elements in this movie that equal the recipe of creating great, healthy, long-term buzz. And I think that mm-hmm. final moment right there may be the best illustration of what these people were doing mm-hmm. of all. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So how do we make sense of that last moment, though? Do we consider that just a dream sequence? Do we consider, you know, like Jason being under the lake all those years? Like, what is he? What do you think he is at the end of part one? What were Cunningham and Miller and company going for? I've always considered it a dream, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And that's I think that's mostly just my brain just can't disconnect the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, if if I watch the first film and I see that end, the ending, I, you know, I try to kind of experience the film just as, you know, as it as its own thing, kind of like what Justin spoke on earlier. But for some reason, my brain just can't can't separate one from the rest of them. So in my head, I, I always uh, gravitate towards it being a dream. Mm-hmm. I think it could go either way. And I think it's the first time in the series, it really establishes the, the idea that this isn't, while it is rooted in a certain sense of reality, it also exists outside the boundaries of what's, what's, uh, sensible 
because mm-hmm. sensible goes out the door right away from this point forward. And that's really when it, that's when it begins. That's when something special happens. And people point to later in the series with like Uber Jason. And then even in part six, where he becomes kind of like zombie Jason, where he can punch mm-hmm. through walls and all that stuff. But really it began here. The idea that he could survive, that he would be in that lake somehow, that he's, you know, existing in the woods somehow still as a child all these years later, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. If it is a dream, then so be it. But they chose to establish it. I mean, if we're just looking at this film on its own merit, I would think that the dream would probably have to be the element that makes the most sense. But because they decided to make him the through line from that point forward and the look that Savini established there, the through line for Jason, for the most part, for the rest of the series, I I mean, you kind of have to take it literally in a way and mm-hmm. shrug, shrug it off as like, here's our twin, another, another one of these Twin Peaks elements that are present in this town mm-hmm. and this area that's that exists in this other realm of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, speaking of Savini's design, I love the fact that for something, for someone who is in this movie, for all of maybe... 10 seconds if he's even seen on screen that long maybe really closer to five seconds the level of care and detail that went into the design for jason and and because that look just stood out so much it's the basis for everything that comes after you almost like once you see jason jump out of the lake you immediately want to see more of him and you kind of even if the movie wasn't planned as a franchise and there was no idea that a sequel was going to be had, um, you really, you want it. You want to see more of this kid, um, going forward. Like you're immediately drawn to it. I, I think I have to go like based on knowing that the filmmakers didn't know what they were going to have that. Yeah. It's that dream sequence. I know the person who plays the cop, uh, in the hospital who says like, you know, there was no boy. Mm -hmm. Like he said, as soon as he said that line, he's like, Oh, they're going to make another one with the kid. (laughs) Uh, but I think that might be, you know, 2020 hindsight and whatnot. Yeah. So like Savini was like, I don't know, we, you know he didn't want to come back. He's like, Jason's that's stupid. Like Jason's dead, but you know, there's money in stupid sometimes. Right. So, <laughs> so speaking of money, Friday the 13th goes on to be an absolute phenomenal success. Like the, the idea that this movie would be anything that a lot of people would actually see, um, never really crossed Sean Cunningham's mind. He thought he'd make a little bit off the movie overall and kind of go on to make his next, you know, enough to make his next thing. But Paramount picks up the movie, gives it a huge marketing push. And this movie that was made for like, what was it? Half a million dollars? Something like that goes on to make something around $60 million in theaters. Like it just, or just an insane amount of money. Um, and at that point, Paramount's like, we got to make another one at that point. Yeah. And, you know, even though Jason's kind of still young, popping out of the water, you know, I, I think the decision to make a sequel was an interesting one. And I'm extremely glad that they did because I, mm-hmm. in my, like, I love that first film, but where the, like, where the series really gets me just going and I, I really get excited for it, I think starts more with the second film mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's just one of my favorite films of all time second one 
I I love the second movie as well, and I'm looking forward to talking to it. Uh, at one next next time we meet, like I think at one point I would have had that ranked as my favorite in the series, and it's really like a beat for beat remake of the first movie in a lot of ways, just with you know a giant hillbilly uh, in a mat in a um, in a potato sack um, killing people rather than like a kindly grandmother killing people. But it's just, it's also like, it's just like, it's a great, great slap. Maybe one of the best slasher movies um, of the period. Yeah. The it's, scene it's... where I don't want to get too deep, but the scene where like Ginny is in his house and you, she doesn't see him, but you see him and you run. You see him run up. Yeah, yeah, You're definitely. Like, that's my go-to shit. scene. Shit. Yeah, that's whatever anyone says. Like these movies are just like garbage. I'm like, I can point to things like that and say, like, nope. Like, there's some real terror going on in some of these here. Yeah, most definitely. So, all right. So, what else do we have to say about Friday the Thirteenth Part One, my friends? I can say that I am very glad that we discussed this film because based on what Justin said regarding the reveal, I am definitely looking forward to watching it again under a different light, a different thought process. And I think that's in part why we're doing this whole podcast, too, is it's letting us go back and revisit these movies um, that we love and maybe looking at them through a different kind of lens and in some cases getting a better appreciation for them. And, you know, in some cases we might come back and be like, maybe I don't know why I like this movie so much, but it's just fun to kind of go back and revisit these movies. Yeah, most definitely. I'm excited. Yeah, I think I hope you guys uh, have Great success with the rest of the discussion of the franchise here. I can't wait to tune in and, and listen to all these. I think the idea of having a guest on each time is so great because you're going to get such a, a wide range of outlooks on these films. And each one of these is going to involve general franchise discussion by default. And so I'm curious how that's going to evolve or change and sort of move as you're working through all of these. And I think that you've made a, a this is a great statement on the the point of incept for the whole franchise on the first film. And I've really enjoyed the discussion. Oh yeah, definitely. We're very excited that you could uh, chat with it, with us about it. And I definitely want you to come back for uh, at least one of the Halloween episodes because absolutely we, we both know you have a lot to say about those. Oh yeah. Anytime you guys need me, just, uh, just give me a call. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come on and discuss anything. So Justin, if people want to hear or read more of you right now, what do you have that you're working on where we can direct folks to? I, I, well, you can go to, let me think, justinbeam.com. I try to keep that updated as best Mm -hmm. I can on, on releases. Really, it's a lot, the bulk of what I'm doing is for Shout Factory and Scream Factory. We Mm -hmm. just had, The Brain just came out on Blu-ray, which I did all the stuff on. And then we had Superstition and Screamers, Willard Mm -hmm. and Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 right before that. Right now I'm in the midst, excuse me, of, I just wrapped Silent Hill and got everything turned in on that. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm working on Vice Squad right now, which is (laughs) is also up for pre-order. 
And I'm trying to think of, it's hard to remember what's been announced and what hasn't. There's a, so, <laughs> there's a bunch more coming up from them as well. So what goes into the decision-making process when you are, when Shout or Scream Factory is looking to bring movies on? Like, what are you, what are the qualities you're looking for that says, like, this is something we want to bring into the fold, not only bring into the fold and release, but obviously there's a lot more care and attention that goes into the Shout and Scream Factory releases than say just like slapping a blue a movie on Blu-ray that wasn't there before, like you know you're basically giving what you know a whole like crash course uh, in the movie where anyone that watches it, even if they weren't familiar with it, is going to be almost like an expert in it once they've gone through all the features and whatnot. Oh man, that's that's I'm honored to hear you say that. I thank you. Um, kind of knocked me off my rail here. I'm uh, sorry. No, no, I just appreciate that. The in terms of the decision making, I know that Cliff, Cliff and Jeff are really the heart of Shop, of Scream Factory. They they are Scream Factory, and they both are so. I mean, they're beyond passionate about these these films, and they will, without digging too deep into the the monotony of the pro or like you know the the, the dirge of the process, they will license a, a number of films from someone from a studio, whoever, and then they'll get a list. And they'll choose which titles they think may be profitable. And there is a process internally that involves a marketing team looking at what what should move, looking at past numbers if it's been released by someone else historically and things like that. So it's not just, do we love this movie? We're going to put it out. Mm-hmm. There has to be economic sense to it as well. What I can speak to more specifically is once that decision has been made, uh, the only, I mean, I have... I have brought a few films to them that that they've ended up distributing uh, because of my relationships with the people who own them. Like, well, Silent Night, Deadly Night was one because I worked on the theatrical re-release a, a few years ago. And when the producers, when it came time for the producers to figure out where to go after Anchor Bay, they called me and they're like, we don't know. We have no idea about the market now. We have no idea where to take this. We just know we want to have a new home for it, where it's going to be given the love that it deserves. And so I brought that to the table for Shout. Same thing with Sleepaway Camp, um, with Body Bags, John Carpenter and Toby Hooper anthology film that Mm -hmm. John had been really burned on bad by Showtime years ago. And so he and I had discussed over the years, it came up time and, you know, here and there about, you know, he always rude the fact that the film that was released on video was cut, that the cover art was never even run by him. And he always thought like, man, this is that, this is a film that deserves better. And when we got into the role of the, when the Scream Factory stuff was first starting to happen and he was just getting his, getting his feet wet in terms of his catalog being explored by these guys, I I brought up body bags to him and I'm like, do you think that maybe we could do something with that? And then after some discussion, it took, a lot of discussion and an, and an agreement not to have that original cover art included. Mm-hmm. That was, that was written into the, the agreement with him. Um, then we decided to proceed with that. So from there, where my role is, is we get the titles and they'll either say, which one do you want? Or they'll say, here's what we, you know, here's what we'd like you to do. And then I go about putting all the special features together on it, which is, tracking down people involved with the films, deciding how I want to structure them, if it's going to be a documentary or standalone interview, and then assembling the commentary teams. And I like to take a little bit of a, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, a little bit of a different approach to a lot of it, a lot more, you know, I'd love to go in depth with people. 
And I like to do things that aren't real obvious, like on Willard, for example, which I think is one of my all time favorite films. This really, aside from Crispin and Arlie Ermey, the star of the film, the stars of the film are the rats. Mm-hmm. You can't do a commentary with rats, but you can have the guys who train the rats. And so mm-hmm. I thought I would love to have these guys. Are so, and I'm, you know, I'm an animal lover and really fascinated by that side of the business too. And I never had a chance to explore it. So I reached out to these guys who were the, the lead animal trainers and they were just ecstatic about being involved and they have been involved with hundreds of films. You name it, they've been involved with it animal-wise from Pirates of the Caribbean down through uh, uh, Monkey Trouble. I mean, like, it's incredible what they've done and they've never, ever been asked for an interview or for a commentary track before at all. And I couldn't believe it because these guys are legit legends. So mm-hmm. I brought them in for a commentary and it ended up being one of my favorite tracks of all time. I mean, the, probably the least obvious, but one of the most fascinating discussions that I've ever had the chance to, to capture, you know, and, and, and include with one of these releases. So for me, I think about what are the things that are underexplored with this film? Who are the people people have wanted to hear from the most or who haven't already told their same stories a thousand times? And what is the best way to present this film without a bunch of outside noise? That's why I don't include like talking head journalists or uh-huh. um, historians and things. I just keep it to the people involved with who actually made the movies because they're the only ones who can really speak to what this is about and how it happened. Uh-huh. And, I, and I don't want people hypothesizing on it. So anyway, I combine all these elements and then uh, create these things. And then we kick it out with as much extra content as we possibly can. So sorry about my long winded answer, but no, that's, that's what that's we're what here we for. Nope. Trust me. Like, I think that's, I, I, you know, to me, like it's, I love knowing how is this put together? And, you know, like I think the idea of, you know, going and not just talking to the directors or the stars of the movies overall, but like, you know, the other folks, like the, the effects folks, the trainers, the folks that are really responsible for the little details that everybody loves and yeah. what we remember about these movies is like a really fascinating thing to do. And like you said, like, where else are you going to hear from these persons? Like, that's just, they're not your go-tos. And I had Amy Steele on early on, and that was a, a really... I loved that discussion that we had. Mm-hmm. And, and the show was really kind of an extension of what I've been doing with the magazines and all that mm-hmm. over the years anyway. And I thought, well, why not just do something else with it and take some side roads? Because I'm not going to get hired on to do like a Friday the 13th Part 2 Blu-ray. That's been done and redone. Mm-hmm. So here's my chance to dive in with the And I love, a, I love her so much. And I love mm-hmm. not just in the film, but she's just such a great person. That's who I brought on. I started with a buddy of mine, Elias Marige, who made a film called Shadow of the Vampire years ago. He also did mm. Begot- Begotten and Suspect mm. Zero and all these things. A- amazing filmmaker. He has so many great stories about like working with Marilyn Manson and all these great things, but he's kind of invisible to the film community at large. And uh, so I was just like, I wanted to take these people who might not get space in magazines or might not I might not end up getting to shoot on a Blu-ray and actually do something with them and, mm-hmm. and, and really give them a platform to tell their story, which is the whole point of all of it. Very cool. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. thank you. 
Hey everybody, your host Mike here. We had a little bit of a recording snafu towards the last minute or two of the session, but that pretty much wrapped it up, although if it ends abruptly, that's why. But in short, I want to thank everyone once again for listening to us and downloading us. Um, From both Jerry and myself, the support we've gotten so far, the feedback from our listeners, and really like just the overall reaction, it's been amazing, and we're super, super grateful for it. We want you to be a part of this show, so please head uh, to the pod and the pendulum at gmail.com. Drop us a quick note with your favorite Friday the 13th movie uh, moments, your favorite kills, what you remember from watching these movies as a kid, and why they still mean so much to you today. Snap us a picture of your uh, Jason Voorhees tattoo or your Pamela Voorhees tattoo, or my God, if you have a crazy Ralph tattoo, I will absolutely love you and be your best friend, and you can be the big spoon. Um, Shoot that over to us at our Twitter site, at Pod and Pendulum over at Twitter. Go on and follow us. Uh, If you're already following us, thank you so much. Please feel free to retweet uh, any of our links and help spread the good word. Speaking of spreading the good word, one thing you can do for us that would be huge, free, takes no more than a minute of your time, go on and leave us a five-star review over on iTunes, if you feel we're worth five stars, of course. It goes a long way towards helping us get discovered by new listeners and by growing the show by leaps and bounds. Once again, Jerry and I both thank you so much. We are so looking forward to coming back next week in our deep dive into the Friday the 13th series with part two.